Over the last eight weeks, we have had the opportunity to uh, see God work in some interesting ways. These are not ways that are necessarily readily observant. They're not things that people are going to stand up and brag about in the worship service. But sometimes isn't it true that God does His best work in the dark? Sometimes it's hidden from sight. We've had the opportunity to focus, uh, really in a concentrated fashion, on refreshing our finances. We've talked comprehensively about how we need to honor God stewardologically. Read, I made that word up. You can, you can write that one down. How to honor God stewardologically. And so while for some of our older and wiser folks, this may sound like common sense, we've talked about how when emergencies happen, you don't just pull out the credit card. You actually set aside a portion of your income to be prepared for emergencies. And wouldn't you know it, in the eight weeks that we've talked about this, we've had people that have had check engine lights come on, heaters not work appropriately when the temperature dips at night. And they're able to say, this isn't really a problem because we're prepared for it. We've talked about the danger that debt is and how debt keeps us from doing things and how to pay debt off using what Dave Ramsey calls the debt snowball. We've talked about not living so completely in slavery to your debt, but actually putting aside several months of income into a savings account, putting 15% of your money, of your income into retirement. Uh, One of the things that's interesting, our small group leaders have talked about the shock that our people have heard when we talked about how to prepare appropriately when it comes to insurance and funding for education. Almost all of our young people have just realized how completely inadequate uh, they were taking care of their family. We've talked about the most significant expenses being related to real estate and mortgages. These are good things for us to talk about. And in all these things, our motive has been to be a good steward of all that God has given. Uh, Money, cash, but also property. How do we honor God with our car? It's not by paying $60,000 for the next seven years. So we've wanted to honor God with all of the good things with which He has entrusted us. And it's a caricature, but the old model of stewardship has been perceived by some as give your 10% and do whatever you want with the other 90. That has not been this approach. You know as well as I do that stewardship is much more than simply what you put in the plate. Stewardship has to do with everything in your life. Now, talking today about giving back to God is always a touchy subject. It is. And while I understand why, isn't it true that it shouldn't be? Should this be a touchy subject? If we believe indeed that God owns everything, don't we probably frequently need to be reminded of that truth? Don't we need to be stirred up to remember that we have a responsibility to give back to the God who has given us everything. But indeed, it is a touchy subject. Listen to this quote from a favorite pastor from a bygone era, A.W. Tozier. He says this, 
The whole question of the believer and his money is so involved and so intimate that one hesitates to even approach a consideration of it. This is messing with people's privacy. But he goes on, Yet this issue is of such great importance that anyone who desires to qualify as a good servant of Christ dare not avoid it, lest they be found wanting in the day of reckoning. Tozer says, touchy subject, but if you want to be found faithful, you must teach and you must learn. And so while we've had a good time talking about the things we've talked about, listen, I'm, I'm proud that our church has helped our young people know that MasterCard is not what gets them out of emergencies. I'm glad that we've got husbands that are saying, wow, if something happens to me, my wife and kids aren't prepared for. I mean, we, we believe in family. We, we think that we should care for this. The issue is that up to this point, a lot of the things that we have talked about, while our motive has been to honor God, they can be perceived as very selfish. How do, how do I save money? How do I prepare for my future? How do I make sure we've got money? One of the advantages of learning how to honor God in, in all areas with your money is that eventually you will move into an era of life where you have the opportunity to be generous. If you're riddled with debt, generosity is a hard sell because somebody's going to go without. And you know what? It's probably not going to be you. It's probably going to be people that are in need. And the truth is when people look at the church, when people who don't go to church look at the church, they see us go about our business and they they see our, our, our beautiful buildings and they see us dressed up in our nice clothes and they wonder what we do with all the money that we have whether we simply use it for ourselves or whether we are trying to truly do good with it. So generosity for a person who wants to honor God is a non-negotiable. And that's what makes this so difficult, is we have to limit our expenses so that we can give to God not minimally, but maximally. And so this morning, we have a very short passage where Jesus talks about giving generously to God And you'll find it in the the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. I'll give you a little bit of the context related to this. Um, This very uh, same uh, parable, this very same incident in Jesus' life uh, also occurs in Luke chapter 20. And when we go to Luke chapter 20, we see something about the context that's not readily apparent in the Gospel of Mark. In Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47, Jesus says this, And while all the people were listening, so there's a crowd, while all the people are listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, beware the religious leaders. They like to walk around in long robes, and they love respectful greetings, your honor. They like to get this in the marketplace, publicly. They love the chief seats in the synagogue. They they want the box seats. And they love the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for appearance's sake, they offer long prayers so that everyone thinks they're spiritual. These will receive greater condemnation. 
Jesus, in one of the courtyards of the temple, calls out the religious leaders for being a sham. Everything they do is selfishly motivated. So Jesus has just come out of an episode where it has been a 15-round fight. He has been boxing with the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. And conflict is tiring. You ever, had, you ever been in a conflict? And it could be short, but it could be heated. And you walk away and you're, you're tired. But we find that with Jesus too when we come to our passage. He's tired and he rests somewhere in what is called the woman's court. And he people watches. You ever gone to a park and just sat down on the bench and watched the interaction? Watch parents playing with their kids, kids playing on the playground. You sit at the mall at the holiday time while you're doing your shopping and you just watch. It's a fascinating thing to do. See what people are up to. And he sits in the women's court right by uh, what can best be translated as the treasure chests. It's the place in the temple where people come in pour their money. There were, um, along the walls, 13 kind of trumpet-shaped receptacles, and each had a specific letter from the Hebrew alphabet because they designated their offering. So if you wanted to give to the Levites, or if you wanted to buy new candles, or you wanted to, to, you know, supply for, um, you know, the chief priest, you had all of these different receptacles all the way around the courtyard, and you would come and you would pour your money into this trumpet-looking thing, and it would pour down through the wall into this chest where they would gather the money. And so listen to this passage, Luke chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Mark's description of Jesus' people watching is kind of generic. When you look at verse 41, it says that Jesus sat down and he began observing how the people were depositing their money. In Luke 21, it seems that Jesus paid special attention to the rich. Uh, 21.1 says Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in. Perhaps he was wondering if the same kind of sacrifice that this poor widow would show would be demonstrated by a person who has means that are even greater. There's greater expectation because they have uh, greater means. Regardless of whether it's Luke's perspective or Mark's perspective, the point is that all these people were observed. And that's really our first point here this morning. While we try to be super secret about our giving, We must realize that giving is not as private a matter as we think because God observes our giving. 
Now, this is not like the choir behind me watching what happens while the plates are passed. Jesus was on a bench along the wall sitting right next to the receptacle where you put your money in. So when you come up, Jesus just kind of casually looks over and he sees what you're doing. He's watching. Now, for some people, that just made Jesus a whole lot less cool in your, your imagination. Because you think, oh, Jesus doesn't care about that. He doesn't care so much about your money as he does about your heart. And we'll see that clearly throughout this passage. We tend to think that our giving is private. But we see in this passage that Jesus is observing with careful attention. Why? Why would he pay attention? Well, we might not like this, but not liking it doesn't invalidate its truthfulness. He's watching because he knows that people's giving demonstrates their love and gratitude. He knows that giving demonstrates their love and their gratitude. You remember what he said about the woman of ill reputation who washed his feet and the religious leaders that were so upset that Jesus would let this woman even touch him. If he knew what a wicked sinner she was, he wouldn't do that. He said, those who have been forgiven much, what? Finish the sentence. They love much. Those who know just how much debt they were in are glad to be generous with whatever means God has given to them. And when it comes to the demonstration of love and gratitude, Jesus observes some specific actions of a group of people and a single individual in this passage. Rich people put in, we don't know how much, but we know large sums of money. And the individual, the widow, puts in what? Two small copper coins. Now when we talk about this, woman who is being observed, I think we'd all agree, knowing what we know, that Jesus has supernatural knowledge, that she's putting in everything that she has. When it comes to charity, she looks like a beneficiary as opposed to a donor. If there's anyone that deserves the money in that chest given to them, it's this widow. She doesn't need to be contributing And yet there is nothing in her attitude recorded in the scriptures that would indicate that she has anything but joy at being faithful and giving back to God. There's no, woe is me, while she's walking over to this. There's no, hey, maybe I can just call in sick to the temple today and then I don't need to put my money in the the treasury. There was a methodical faithfulness that came out of a deep love and gratitude for what God had done for her. And it's interesting to contrast the attitude of this simple widow with the attitude of the rich religious people. You remember what we said in Luke 20? They were greedy for recognition. They loved to be have honorable titles. Well, good to see you, fine sir, uh, Mr. Gentleman, honorable doctor, whoever, soever, whatever. They, they, they enjoyed recognition. And that, that desire for recognition, it affected how they dressed. They wanted to dress nice. They wore long robes. Um, I don't know what those long robes look like. I don't wear robes, but I, I almost imagine a, a bride 
with a train to her wedding dress. It's significant. You notice it. They had long robes that were heightened their sense of importance. Not only did it affect their dress, it affected their prayer. So they would pray long, flowery prayers in public. That's probably because they never prayed privately. They just prayed when they got credit for it. It affected how they acted. Did you notice what it said in Luke chapter 20? What did they devour? Not food. They devoured widows' homes. Isn't it interesting that the person who's being commended here is a widow who gives everything that she has? They like to be seen. They like to jockey for positions of honor. And they sought to accumulate stuff, even if it meant stepping over poor, helpless, and defenseless widows. The truth is, we know this, that some people in their habit of life are just takers. They're takers. Even their giving is taking. Because these people, they would give, but their giving was for self-promotion. They'd take that big long robe that they have, and they'd fill it up with their money, and they'd waddle over to that receptacle, and they'd let you hear all the coins jingling in there while they take five minutes to pour all their stuff in there. You know, and they're, they're smiling, making sure, yeah, you know, see what I'm doing? Even their giving, even though it was giving to God, was done for their own self-promotion, their own pride, and their own ego. The widow, on the other hand, sought no praise. There was no fanfare. She simply came with her humble gift. And the reason that she did was that her reward was in the giving itself. Not in the recognition that she got, but simply in the giving. And if some people are takers, there are others who are truly givers. You know and you are blessed by people who um, perhaps you don't even know that well. They take the opportunity to give you the shirt off their back. They know that you're hurting. And un, uh, out of disproportion to the relationship that you have, they say, hey, let's get together and talk. They're givers. There's nothing in it for them. They do it because it's the right thing to do. And if you pay attention closely to this passage, there's really a simple beauty to what's being advocated here. You see, in the daily total, when the tellers opened up the treasure chests and counted what the daily take was, what the widow put in would not have been missed if she hadn't put it in there. Less than a cent. When you've got all these other rich people that are putting in tons of money. But as we will see, this small gift garners much more attention than even the gifts that are multiple, multiple times her size. The truth for her is that while her gifts would not have been missed, she would have missed the opportunity to give. Isn't that a radical thing to say? Don't you wonder how people who who do not go to church wonder why we come to church and why we're glad to give our money to God? It's a radical thing to think about. She knew that if she wasn't there, she would not have the opportunity to give, regardless of whether anybody praised her for what she put in there. And it's 
This is a tough illustration for me, particularly this morning, but it's like being a fan of a football team. Yes, you can laugh. Go for it. Um, there, what's the difference between having a team and being a fan? You know the distinction? I mean, there's a couple people here. I know you know what the distinction is between having a team that you kind of sort of cheer for and being a fan. You know, a person who has a team, they're doing other things while the game is on. A person who's a fan, you are not allowed to talk to them while the game is on. There is no communication besides a few grunts, groans, and a lot of like primal screaming that is happening. You would think they're actually playing the game and getting hurt while the tackles are happening and all that thing happens. Why? Because when you are committed to something, you want to get in the game in some way. And you may never ever put pads on, but that's not going to stop you from yelling and screaming. You are going to get in the game however you can because a fan wants to participate. A fan says when their team is doing bad, well, doggone it, if I drive down there and they let me put pads on, I would do it because I want to help my team out. And that is the attitude of this widow. She doesn't have much to give. But the privilege of participating was well Uh, was significantly of more value to her than receiving recognition for what she put in. And the teaching here is that there is no one too poor to give back to God. And that leads us to our second point. We must not assume that giving is only for other people because everyone's giving is examined by God. There's a huge difference in attitude that people have for giving. And we've already seen that Jesus is condemning religious acts that are done for selfish, egoistic reasons. Throughout Scripture, we see all kinds of folks that have improper motives uh, for giving. It's actually quite more commonplace than you might assume. You know the story in Acts. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they agree as a husband and wife to sell their property and give it to the church. But they, they want the credit for giving everything, but they secretly keep some of it back. And yet they tell the entire congregation, we have sold everything and given it to y'all. Peter goes, is that so? Because God kind of told me, you're lying right now. Boy Scouts honor, I, I, we, we have sold everything. Because of their lie, they were struck down dead right there. Improper motives. Listen to Matthew chapter 23, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe, listen to this, mint and dill and cumin. You tithe spices. But you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law. You've neglected justice. You've neglected mercy. You've neglected faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and then swallow a camel. You want to look so religious by giving... uh, you, You read the fine print to know what kind of tithe you should do on your spices. But the the big stuff... Justice, love towards God, faithfulness, you don't care about it. You're, 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 
you're improperly motivated in your giving. They gave what was convenient, and it looked like they were so observant. They tithed mint leaves, for heaven's sake. Yet they neglected and lived like the devil. Stewardship is, uh, friends hear this clearly, so much more than financial. But it is never anything less. Listen to Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. Jesus was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, we know this, it's one of the Ten Commandments, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would have helped you is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things like this. The Bible says really clearly, you have a responsibility. Honor your father and mother. Take care of them. And the Jews had developed this IRS tax code that allowed you to say, everything that I have belongs to God. So, mom and dad, man, you know, if I would have known you needed help, I'd have kept some of that back, but I've given it to God. You don't want me to take it back from God, do you? You don't want me to take, take it back from God to help you. I mean, I really can't do that. And the truth is, while they gave it to God, guess who still maintained possession of it? They did. So they used it for whatever they wanted under the pretext that it was given for God. And guys, this is not just an attitude that happens in the Old Testament or in Jesus' time. (laughs) There are advocates today of what we call grace-giving. And they say, well, you know what? My, my children belong to God. My children belong to God. That's a good statement, isn't it? It is. It's just not where they take it. Since my children belong to God, therefore, everything that I spend on their clothing, on their food, on their medical practice, on their education, is stewardologically deductible. You know, I use my house for small group. I use my computer to download worship music or Bible studies, so I should be able to get a tax break for that. That counts as as giving to God. You know what? I gave a lady from church a ride the other day, so I get to claim that mileage as part of my stewardship. The thing that's funny is that when everything is giving to God, it kind of looks strangely like nothing is given to God. Our giving is not just observed. It is examined. And when we talk about pop quizzes, when we talk about about examinations, that's not a fun thing. But here's what's cool. Jesus tells us what the test question is. He tells us, "There's there's a pop quiz coming. Let me give you the answer so that you're prepared for the question. And, and the question is this. It's, for us, it's not just, did we give? It's, how did we give? What was our spirit like? Did we give as a giver? Or did we give as a taker? This brief episode draws to a conclusion with Jesus calling to himself, His disciples, gathering them around. 
And he's about to make an important statement. And we know this because he even uses his truly, truly statement. When he wants to get people's attention, he uses this formula. And he says, uh, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Did you hear what he said? She put in more, period. And it's not just saying, you know what, she is the, she's the winner of the day. She's number one in the list of top ten givers. He says, no, she put in more than all the rest of everyone combined. He says that. She put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Here's a question. We know there were some that put what into the treasury? Large amounts. We know what the widow put in. What did she put in? Two coins that don't even come to a penny. How in the world could Jesus say she put in more? How could he say that? Our our third and final point is this. We must be careful to think that all giving is equal because Jesus commends the sacrifice, not the amount. Jesus commends the sacrifice, not the amount. How did the widow put in more? Well, she put in more both by spirit and by proportion. She was humble with her gift, and she gave everything that she had. There are some Bible commentators that like to make, um, make much of the verbal form. Uh, it's the same verb, but it's different tenses that are used for the rich person and for the widow. And because the rich people are coming bringing wheelbarrows full of money, it's translated that they came and dumped their money into the receptacle. Kind of an intimate term there, isn't it? They just came and dumped, dumped their money backed up the truck, dumped it out. But the widow, same verb, different form, placed her two coins in the receptacle. You catch that? Dumped, placed. It's a different spirit. It's a different spirit. The giving of the rich left Jesus unmoved Not because he didn't appreciate their gift. Their giving just did not require any sacrifice. And yet when the widow comes, she sacrifices literally all that she has. You see, Jesus is teaching us here that the means and the motives of the giver are indeed the true measure of generosity. When you think about the widow, her giving showed us some really amazing things. We're told that she gave everything that she had to live on. She might have been poor in this world, but she was rich towards God. She was giving everything that she had. And in her act of giving, there seems to be a complete lack of anxiety about her life. She looked worried about where her next meal is coming from. Is she making a big show of her generosity so that people help her out? No. She trusts God. She is truly seeking first God's kingdom and allowing Him to add everything that's supposed to come her way. 
She has a willingness to give all to God. The truth is, from her perspective, she knew that God didn't need her money, but she knew that she needed to give to demonstrate that he owned it all. When it came to her finances, she was not going to be content with giving God leftovers or hand-me-downs. Wasn't going to happen. When faced with who got the leftovers, her or God, she was more glad to limit what she had for herself than to limit what she gave to God. This is a strange thought. Not just to people outside the church. It's a strange thought to people inside the church. Christianity is not about drinking the Kool-Aid or simply believing some strange metaphysical truths. It's about a heart that has been changed. And a heart that has been changed by grace wants to be generous. And when we talk about giving and we talk about generosity, the conversation turns to tithing. For the widow, I love this, tithing was like training wheels. Training wheels. Helped her to learn to give. But you know what? There came a time where it's time to kick the training wheels off. And it was time to move away from doing what the law prescribed to doing what a redeemed heart wanted to do. She didn't stop at 10%. Not in this passage. She gave all that she had. She put her very life in the treasure chest. She was glad to give it out. She'd kicked off the training wheels long ago and moved into what we can only call true and open-hearted generosity. And for us, this is a good thing. There are some people today that say, you know, in the New Testament, tithing is not a concept. Tithing doesn't exist anymore. Listen, I get that. I, I think the, the model in the New Testament is sacrificial giving. Um, but you never see Jesus say, well, now that I'm here and I've introduced grace into the equation, tithing is completely done away with. And you're, you'll remember, those of you that are Bible, Bible scholars, Bible students, Abraham gave a tithe to a mysterious man by the name of Melchizedek before the law was ever around. So the tithe preceded the Mosaic law. Tithing is not law. Tithing is just a way that we give back to God. And so for us, here's what I think that this means. Tithing is a great floor, but it's a really poor ceiling. Tithing is a great floor, but it's a really poor ceiling. For some of you, listen, giving 5% of your income back to God would really be a challenge, wouldn't it? The goal is not to be legalistically motivated. It's to be open-heartedly generous and to move into greater opportunities for obedience. I'm going to use a holiday illustration that is probably a little too early. <clears throat> That's all right. I heard Christmas music on Wednesday. There's something, there should be a law that you cannot play Christmas music till after Halloween, after Thanksgiving. But there's a, there's a truth that sometimes even believers, people who know what Jesus has done for them, they can sometimes act like Ebenezer Scrooge. You've got a lot. God has blessed you. And you don't want to give it out. But do you remember how the story ended? It's a great story. 
Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Here's the conclusion to the story. Scrooge, after the ghosts had visited him and he'd been warned about the consequences of his ways, Scrooge went to church and he walked about the streets and he watched people hurrying to and fro and he patted children on the head and he asked questions of the beggars and he looked down into the kitchens of houses and up into windows and he found at this point in his life that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could bring him so much happiness. And you know what happens. Cratchit, the man that he had tormented, he went and bought the largest turkey he could find in the marketplace. And he sent it to Cratchit's house anonymously. He didn't care if he got credit for what he did with his money anymore. He ended up giving a huge gift to a charity that helped the poor. And then not only was he generous with his money, he was generous with his relationships. While he had always sat at home on Christmas, this night he headed to his nephew's house to celebrate together. This is the story of a man whose life was changed. And it says that Scrooge did all of that and infinitely more. And to little tiny Tim, he became like a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master... As good a man as the good old city knew. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him. But he let them laugh and he paid no attention to them. For he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on the globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. There's something eminently attractive about not white-knuckle grasping onto your stuff so much that you will not even give it back to God. And when you see a man whose life is touched by God's grace, don't you want to be that? you got one of three options. You're either Scrooge at the beginning of the story, you're going through it right now and you're in the middle of the story, or you have the opportunity to be Scrooge at the end of the story. When we talk about Christian teaching, faith, hope, and love will always be at the core. Nothing will displace faith, hope, and And love is the core of what we believe as Christians. But at the same time, how we steward our life and our money will never be displaced as the means of measuring whether those three we value at all in our souls. So friends, I pray this morning, not just that you're generous with your giving to the church, but that you're generous with your relationships. We know that there are people that are hurting in our congregation. You know that you have neighbors that are hurting. There are things that you can do with what God has given you to help them. And my prayer this morning, that there is no stewardologically defined goal this morning. Our tithe doesn't need to be a certain thing. Some of that's just hogwash. The truth is, we need to be willing to say, here's my life. I'm giving it to you. That's what the Christian message is about. It's just saying, God, you have me, and I see fit 
as you see fit, do with my life and my resources as you will. That's what it means. So today, as we pray, as we have our invitation, the invitation's for everybody. It's not just for people that are visitors. Maybe you need to come and say, hey, you know what, today, there are ways I am keeping parts of my life back from God. I'm not giving it to Him. I've not given it to Him. Today can be the day where you turn it over to Him and you allow Him to work in you the transformation that He does in others. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for how you have blessed us. Um, even those, those of us in the midst of very difficult circumstances can see your good hand in our lives. If we have eyes of faith to trust that you're actually at work in this world, we can see glimpses of how you have been gracious to us. Lord, you have given us everything on loan to, to do good in the world, to honor you with what we do with our resources. Lord, I pray today that those of us that don't quite understand what it means to put our, put our life in your hands, that we'll get those questions answered today. For those of us that do, but perhaps need a remedial lesson, Lord, you tell us that we can always make things right with you uh, by confessing and repenting of ways that we have not turned our life over to you. So today, Lord, have your way. Have our hearts. Change us for good. Change us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.